Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'll be talking with Billy Pizer, who's the Vice President for Research and Policy Engagement at, wait for it, Resources for the Future. Billy stepped into this role on September 1st, but has been in the RFF orbit for many years. And I'll leave it to him to share how his path led him back to Washington, D.C. and to RFF after a number of years away. But in the meantime, in this conversation, Billy and I are recording this episode on the second to last day of COP26, closing out our three-part COP-focused podcast series. Billy is talking to me live from Glasgow, where he's RFF's eyes and ears on how this critical negotiating session is unfolding. He'll share his reflections on the conference proceedings and outcomes, as well as what needs to happen next. Stay with us. Hi, Billy. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to talk with you today. Great to talk with you, too. Uh, Is this really your first time on the podcast? I feel like I should have confirmed that with you sooner, but I believe it is. Is that right? Totally. Okay. Okay. Well, you and I talked previously about a possible episode. This was before you were back at RFF, but a possible episode on on discounting, which we can still come to at some point. But but since this is your first introduction to our listeners, um, I wanted to give you kind of an extra minute to say a little bit about your background and role and and how you came back to RFF. Oh, wow. Great story. I mean, uh, you know, I started my career at RFF right out of grad school, um, spent like 10 years there, kind of cutting my teeth, as they say, doing research and, and, and learning how to engage with stakeholders and, and the policy process. And then in 2008, I went to the Treasury Department, where I, I spent three years working on international climate finance. Then I decided to take a slight detour. I, I got tired of Washington. I had a small baby and thought I needed to go someplace quieter. So I went to Duke University for 10 years, where I was a professor. But after 10 years in academia, I kind of decided I missed the excitement of being really engaged in policymaking. And when I looked around and thought about the possible opportunities to combine research and engagement, it was pretty obvious I wanted to come back to RFF. So I'm pretty excited. Well, that's great. Yes, we're very, very fortunate to have you back. So, And fortunate to have you in Glasgow as well to sort of round out this series with us. Um, okay, so let me start with kind of a follow-up question to something that Susie Kerr and I talked about last week. She and I reflected a little bit on some of the commitments that had stemmed from the first week of the COP. And so I'd like to ask you, uh, or start this conversation by asking you about one of this week's major announcements. So, uh, how consequential is yesterday's joint announcement between John Kerry and a leading uh, Chinese climate negotiator, whose name I apologize that I'm going to... Xi Jinping. I knew you'd be better at pronouncing that, given your connections to China. Um, but the two of them sort of came out in, my understanding is sort of back-to-back press conferences, affirming both countries' commitments to climate action. So how much does that matter? I think it's actually quite significant. Uh, you know, if you if you look through you know the details, for example, and, and and try to compare it to the big announcements they made in 2014, there's not as much stuff there. Um, but I think it's always really important when China and the U.S. can stand together and announce their joint commitment on climate change, no matter what's in there. And and, and here you did have you know some significant action, I think, on methane, for example. Um, but it's important because China and the U.S. are the two biggest emitters. And so when they are aligned and working together, it creates momentum for everybody else to join in. And especially as you get into the second week of the COP and there are 
detailed negotiations to be finished and things that people want to get done, having some sort of positive signal and momentum is, is really important. And I think it helps leverage more concessions and actions by other countries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, good. And I want to talk a little bit later on about surprises, because I understand that the, the announcement um, was a bit of a surprise, that it wasn't something visible long in advance, um, but that it was nonetheless the result of a, a lot of sort of a year-long set of negotiations that got them to this point. So I'm, I'm hoping we can talk again about surprises. Um, but in the short term, I want to ask you kind of another question that builds on some of the conversations I had with Rachel Cletus and Susie in the first two podcasts, and that was about the importance of climate finance conversations at this COP, and also the need to really fully resolve some of the remaining issues related to full implementation of the Paris Agreement. So what can you tell us about those two kind of critical measures and how they've been uh, unfolding? Well, I think they've been unfolding differently, I guess is the way I would say it. Um, so the you know the leftover issue from Paris, the big one, was really this what they call Article Six. It's the mechanism by which countries that overcomply with their NDCs, their pledges under the Paris Agreement, can sell those excess emissions to another country that may not quite make their Paris commitment, um, and the rules for doing that and and the mechanisms for crediting it have been um you know tricky and and i could go into the details but the, the main thing is that it seems like there is a deal to be had there and um people seem like they're optimistic that they'll get a deal by the end of the week of course you know you never know until until the end but it seems like there's momentum building for a, a deal the other issue on climate finance is is trickier and and it's harder to resolve because it's not just a question of negotiation it's a question of countries coming up with money um to support poorer countries that they just haven't been able to come up with and in that case there's a lot of disappointment and a lot of frustration and it's not just a question of negotiation like i said it's it's having to go back to governments and and find resources that they haven't been able to put together in the past mhm mhm yeah, there's always a danger of, of recording these episodes um, any time before the end of the COP, because I know that a lot can happen in that last critical day. But um, given where we are now, it's good to have your thoughts on, on those two critical issues. Yeah, and I should say, on the climate financing, it's not that I think it's going to get stuck. It's just going to be painful, I think, <laughs> because you know, at the end of the day, I think everybody has an interest in having a deal, and everybody recognizes the difficulties um, but it's 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 frustrating, I think, for a lot of people that this pledge that had been made actually in Copenhagen, really, for the $100 billion has not been realized. Yeah. And Copenhagen was 2009. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was 2009. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. Okay. Let me turn to, the, to a question about the U.S. here for a second. Um, so in the time that you have been in Glasgow, the U.S. got its infrastructure bill over the finish line, more or less. I don't it hasn't been signed by the president, but nonetheless, considerably farther over the finish line. Um, but it has not gotten that larger climate-focused agenda that the Biden administration was almost certainly hoping to pass um, as part of the Build Back Better. It's you know the ambition and legislation. So, what was your sense of of the progress that the U.S. was able to make? How did that ultimately position the U.S. to participate and contribute? How much did it matter? I think it was pretty consequential. I think everybody has been 
looking at the United States and I think Kerry and his team have been, you know, spent the past year. I mean, you were talking about the China announcement a minute ago. I mean, I've spent the past year, multiple visits, multiple countries, you know, Zoom meetings, but actually physically traveling to try to build up support for greater ambition for their, you know, priorities on methane and hydrogen and deforestation. And I think the question they always face is, well, is U.S. the U.S. really a partner in this? Is the U.S. going to do what it says it's going to do under its pledge of 50 to 52 percent, which hinged on these these packages, or at least, you know, would be substantially enhanced by these packages. So I think when the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, it, you know, it was a shot in the arm in a sense for, you know, people's conviction that maybe Biden could do this. Obviously, everybody understands that what's in the, the Build Back Better um, the reconciliation bill is the much, much bigger piece of the action for climate change um, and is also the harder piece in some sense. But making progress on the infrastructure bill, I think, shows that it can be done and that they know what they're doing. So I, I think it was it was very valuable. I think it was mm-hmm. very valuable. Mm-hmm. Good. OK. Uh, another question for you. You mentioned to me earlier in the week during another meeting that you were, I think, struck by the kind of continued role of non-state actors, whether that's industry or subnational entities like U.S. states, but the continued role of those non-state actors in, in driving climate commitments forward. So, and feel free to sort of re-articulate that. Um, it was your original thought that I'm just teasing out here, but can you give an example or two of, of something like that that really struck you in Glasgow? Let me start there. Well, yeah, just just to back up, I mean, if you... You know, you go back 20 years in the negotiations, the, the meetings always had side events and always had uh, observers who would come and, and meet at the same time the negotiators were meeting, sometimes to try to influence the negotiations, sometimes to really just observe the negotiation, and sometimes just to network, uh, which is sort of what I'm doing here. Um, but it's really changed. Um and in my mind, I guess I'd point to Paris, but maybe that wasn't exactly the right moment to point to, um, where the side events, the events that were being hosted by non-government organizations or uh, non-government actors, non-state actors, as they're called, um, began to almost be as significant, if not more significant, than the negotiations themselves. Um I, I sometimes tell the story that you know, I, I think the the French in Paris, you know, did this somewhat as a as a hedge because there was no predicting they were going to get a deal with the official negotiations. But if they staged all of these non-state actors, they knew were going to make these announcements and these pledges and these commitments. At least they would have that, right? So I think it was a brilliant strategy. Um, and, you know, since then, there's been more, you know, an increasing recognition and an official platform for these non-state actors to, um, you know, to do their activities and to, to, to have a stage at the COP. And, you know, now it, it seems like that is actually, you know, the, the bigger, you know, the bigger thing. I guess, you know, the, the things that come to mind that have happened here, you know, one is this, this big, uh, you know, methane coalition that the United States has put together. You know, it wasn't like actually, I guess it wasn't a non-state actor, but it wasn't a cop outcome. It wasn't an outcome of the negotiations. This was a platform for the United States and all of its partners that were involved in this methane 
effort, you know, to make this announcement that that they're going to you know control methane emissions. Um, you know, similarly with the you know deforestation uh, announcement. I mean, these are all things. That I, I guess it's it's a little wrong to call it a non-state actor, but it was not part of the negotiations. Um, something that was not even a state actor you could look at would be this announcement by all of these major financial investors that they are going to you know work towards net zero i forget i think it's the glasgow financial act or financial actors network for zero or something like that it's got kind of a funny acronym um but in theory all of these major financial companies like blackrock and whatever have banded together as a group to jointly work towards net zero in their investments um and again, not part of the negotiations, not even, you know, a government in this case. And, you know, in some ways, these are the more significant outcomes of the, of the event. It's not, I mean, Article 6, you know, the, those details are important. Whatever financial arrangements get put into the official decisions and the negotiations, that'll be important. But these, in some ways, these other things are almost more important. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's fair then to sort of characterize the cop as as much of a sort of a, a motivating factor to, you know, every year we know there's going to be this period of time where all eyes are focused on, on climate change. And so if nothing else, it's become a motivator for some of these non-negotiated actions to kind of come to life? Yeah, well, it kind of goes to the heart of what the model is now that you know, in the olden days, in the olden days, 20 years ago, it was all about trying to negotiate a stronger international agreement, um, you know, targets and timetables. That was the, the rhetoric in the, in the, in the knots. Um, and, and, and then to get everybody to participate because at the time it was the Kyoto protocol, it was only a small set of countries and we were trying to get all these other countries to join in, including the United States. Um, and so it's the whole model really shifted initially in Copenhagen, but then much more so in Paris to this model where countries put their own voluntary contributions forward. Um, and there's a regular cycle of, you know, upping their pledge, examining and reviewing their pledges, doing what they're supposed to do next year, which is the global stock take. Um, and what's also happened is even more regular pressure to increase ambition. Um, and, and, and you saw some of that, some of that is going on even now. They're trying to get decisions to actually revisit the, the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions more frequently and get people to strengthen them. Um, so, you know, in some ways that's the model and it doesn't, those actions and those commitments, the state commitments are obviously the biggest things, the most significant things, because eventually they are, hopefully going to be backed up by policies um, and regulation and things that will ensure the outcomes, whereas the other announcements are, you know, essentially voluntary. Um, although, you know, anything at the international level is sort of voluntary. Um, but that's what the annual process is. It's like everybody knows there's going to be this two weeks in November or December. You're going to have to you know, it's an opportunity for people to make the big announcements that they've been working on for countries who don't want to be embarrassed. It's you know, they, they have to come up with something they're going to announce. Um, 
you know, in the case of investors, they want to look better to their clients or don't want to look bad to their clients. It's the time when they are kind of under scrutiny. So it, it is exactly, it is exactly that. It's this annual, I don't know if you want to call it a beauty pageant or um, a, a uh, you know, a, a medical appointment where everybody gets carefully examined. I'm not quite sure what the right metaphor is, but it's this regular annual event now. Um, and it's, and it's really not about the negotiations. There's not like a lot to negotiate. It's about these, these increased ambitions and announcements. Mm -hmm. I just have one more follow-up question about that then. So it also seems that some of these announcements are now multi-sectoral as well. And maybe they have been before. Maybe I just haven't looked at them in enough depth to know that. But, you know, it's not just that groups of countries are announcing something and over here groups of companies are announcing something. Some of these commitments that are coming out, again, separate from the official negotiating process, but, but these commitments that are coming out at the beauty pageant of commitments are, in fact, you know, in essence, public-private partnerships, right, in a way that a number of actors have always been saying we need, that that's going to be critical. You know, governments can't act alone. The business community can't act alone. They really have to act in concert. And so is that, well, first of all, am I am I looking at that in the right, you know, is that, does that match your understanding? And then does that matter? I'm asking a lot of questions about what matters. <laughs> this is a very meaty conversation here. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I think you're onto something. I mean, I, I've been having similar thoughts, I don't know, Epiphany is a little bit of a strong word, but I think, you know, as an economist, you're kind of trained to think about everything in terms of regulation, that businesses are going to profit maximize. And if you want to change behavior to do something that's not profit maximizing, namely to reduce carbon emissions, you got to regulate them. You got to price carbon. You got to do something. Otherwise, they're just going to keep doing it. I think the political scientists have been, you know, a lot more clever about thinking about, you know, policy is not being the starting point, but kind of being the outcome <laughs> and the actions happen first and then you get the policy and then maybe there's feedback into action in the next round of policy. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things the public private interaction does is, you know, in the absence of, you know, say more aggressive regulation in the United States to have all of these companies believing it's going to happen and investing as if it's going to happen creates momentum for action. And so, you know, that's, you know, one way in which I think there's a public private interaction that, you know, is a little bit unusual for economists, you know, to be admitting, but I think it's right. I think that's kind of the way this, this works right now. I mean, there, there are other types of public private interactions where, you know, they're working together, you know, to develop something. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, here it's much, there's, there's a much more interesting, I think, political dynamic at work um, that I think, you know, people have figured out that this is a way to kind of eventually move the policy by, you know, working with a set of stakeholders who, honestly, they're, they may still want to make a lot of money. <laughs> they, think, they think that they're, they're getting ahead of the curve by investing in these technologies that not everybody has figured out are going to be the way of the future. So there's all kinds of interesting dynamics, you know, kind of lurking uh, beneath the surface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to come back to my question that I was sort of hinting at earlier, which is about surprises. And the reason I wanted to ask you this question is because, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be in touch with you over the course of this week. And there have been a few little nuggets that you've shared that were things that surprised me, you know, the, um, 
rekindled interest in North American collaboration, for example, around climate mitigation. So, um, so I wanted to ask you to share with our broader audience here whether you had any surprises that you wanted to share. Uh, I imagine, you know, you've had a series of fascinating conversations. Were there any new ideas? Were there any fresh opportunities for progress that really jumped out at you? Yeah, it's, it's, in some ways, it's kind of hard to, to pick out little ones. Uh, I'm glad you prompted me by, by mentioning that, that, you know, North American idea. I mean, one thing lurking, I think, in the background for me, um, and I heard somebody ask this question this morning, is, you know, how much of a difference did President Biden's election make, um, you know, in, in what is happening right now in Glasgow? And I actually, I forget what the person who was asked said, but I was actually thinking it actually is quite important, you know, not from the obvious perspective that the U.S. is now working to take action, um, but because, you know, the U.S., when it works really hard uh, and you have the right team in place at the State Department, and I think John Kerry has a great, you know, team of people working, um, and they've been working rather relentlessly since January, um, they can, they can be pretty effective. And I think, you know, if, if there's, you know, some surprise, I guess, lurking for me here, it's, it's how, you know, they've managed to really leverage what they had, you know, which was, you know, this very slim majority in, in Congress, um, and the possibility. And, and then finally the, the success with bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, to really leverage a pretty impressive set of, of, actions here. So, you know, overall, I think it is kind of impressive. And the idea that, you know, maybe there, you know, could be rekindled interest in some sort of North American, uh, you know, climate, you know, joint climate policy or something, I think is really, um, it's a really remarkable turnaround and, you know, in 12 months. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing, honestly, is just that the, the mood here feels like, I mean, there's always people here are protesting because, you know, we need to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow or yesterday. Um, but to me, there's, there's been a palpable feeling like there, there is, there is some, there is progress. I guess the other thing that, that I think remains surprising to me, although I guess nobody else, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm late to the party, um, <laughs> is, yeah, the, you know, the overwhelming interest in the financial sector. Um, and I guess I've, I've known about that in the United States, but, you know, seeing it internationally, uh, it's, it's just kind of a, it's remarkable how convinced the financial markets and the private sector is that this is all going to happen. And I think in the United States, it's easy to get kind of caught up in, you know, what can be legislated, what can't be legislated, what's going to go to the courts, how the courts are going to deal with it. And it, it seems like, you know, Biden, you know, we're all hoping Biden will make good on his pledge or, well, I mean, he'll be out of office. He won't be in office in 2030, but, you know, th this will all work if we care about this issue. Um, but there are a bunch of people who are convinced it's going to work. And so there are they're, they're, people are betting on it. They're putting real money on it. Now, how far they can go without the policies is another question, but people are betting on it. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here. I'm going to ask you one um, kind of hot seat question that I think um, a lot of people think about in the context of these meetings. And then I'll turn to kind of a, a few wrap ups, but here's my hot seat question for you. So um, is it 
you know, is it worthwhile to actually have so many people attend these meetings? Um, you know, there are tens of thousands uh, people who, who show up, many of whom are just there kind of to observe and, you know, be there. Um, there's, as you mentioned, tons of side events and, you know, all these non-negotiators participating. So, um, so what's your take on that? You know, there's a big cost of getting people there. There are the carbon costs. In this case, there are real concerns over equity and, and access. And so what's your read on, on the value of, of attendance? I guess I would look at it a couple of ways. Um, so certainly you're right. I mean, it, there is a lot of people coming here. Um, and a number of us who have been in the government and negotiated in the past, I met uh, one friend, David Sandalow, and we were talking about how much more fun it is to come here when you're not in the government. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, there, there's some perks to be in the government, like you don't have to wait in line quite as much um, and you get your hotel reservations taken care of. Um, but the flip side is, you know, you're, you're working from dusk till dawn, uh, much more than that. You're working from like, you know, 5 a.m. till midnight or something nonstop. Uh, I I feel like in Copenhagen, I I definitely went more than 24 hours without sleeping. And now it's like, oh, I I can do a podcast. (laughs) So so there's definitely an aspect that there are a lot of people who are not burning the midnight oil all the time. Um, But I do think that there is a... First of all, there's no substitute for doing in-person negotiations. I mean, I, I don't know anybody who does any sort of work like this who would say that you can do it over Zoom. You just can't tell if the person you're talking to is sincere or not, or if they're really mad or if they're at the end of their rope or what it is. So I think negotiations certainly have to be in person and you can't get around that. And that is, you know, probably almost 10,000 people. Um, And then I think, you know, for the side events, you have to ask the question, um, you know, is there some element of that outside of the negotiations? And I, and I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think there are benefits that we get from, you know, we, we were talking about all these side event announcements, um, you know, from methane to whatever, and those are increasingly significant. So I think that there is value in that. Does it need to be every year? Could it be fewer people? Yeah, probably there's some way to edit it down. But I, you know, it would be an interesting calculation, you know, 10,000 or 20 or 25,000 people, the carbon costs of those people coming, you know, versus what is achieved and what might not be achieved if we didn't actually have the event. I mean, as you mentioned, part of what happens here is the the spectacle of all these people converging and the pressure it creates. If it was just, you know, a closed door session, I'm not sure it would create the same sort of beauty pageant festival notion that it does. So, so I, I think... I mean, it's not. It would be nice to think that we could do this all by Zoom, um, but I just don't think you would get the. I don't think you get the leverage, and and that's really what this is about: is is exerting some sort of pressure on countries and other actors to you know own up to their obligations or their you know what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for talking through that. And um, okay. And really quickly, I'm trying to sort of pull the threads from all three of these podcasts in the series together. And I've asked both of my previous two guests about success. Um, What does success look like? Are we on track for success? And then I want to ask you, recognizing that the cop's not over yet, we still have at least a day to go. Sometimes, if not often, they run longer. But given where we are, would you, Billy Pizer, consider this cop a success? Why or why not? 
Yeah. So without even knowing what happens with the actual negotiations, I'd say this was a this was a success in the sense that I think it served the beauty pageant role in the sense that it it forced countries and non-state actors to come up with announcements that were significant. It wasn't so tangible that you were going to see a dramatic change in the trajectory of emissions, you know, in a chart over the next 20 years from what we decided today or this week or this, the past two weeks. But I think it's it's the kind of progress that we need to make every single year that over time will add up to something significant. And I think when this whole arrangement was was kind of imagined, it was all about maximizing what you can get from countries, recognizing the limitations of international negotiations and agreements. And I think the system is kind of working the way it was designed. And you know, maybe we can get more in the future. Maybe we can have a binding target and timetable sort of thing. But right now, I think we may be leveraging about as much as we can. And it's flexible. You know, the United States can disappear for four years, uh, you know, in terms of climate change. And the process continues and the United States comes back and we make progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Well, I love ending on an optimistic note. So that's fantastic. Um, I do want to close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Billy, what's on the top of your stack? Is there anything that you're reading or listening to um, cop-wise or otherwise that you'd want to recommend to our listening audience? Well, I have to confess, I had to think a bit about this because <laughs> I haven't been reading or listening to podcasts that much. But when I thought about it, I was, I was reminded of a conversation I had with uh, David Victor, who's a political scientist, I think out at, at San Diego, um, about this idea of, of penalty default. Um, and it's this idea that we're at a moment in time where companies are really at risk if they do not you know, take risks and do things that are a little bit outside their comfort zone. You know, think about uh, GM deciding they're going to have an all-electric fleet um, by whatever date. Um, you know, not something that a conservative company would normally do. But I think there's this feeling like if they don't do something dramatic and significant like that, they're going to be out of business. Um, and, and I forget how it ties into the term penalty default, but he has a book coming out called Fixing the Climate um, with Charles uh, Sable. Um, so it's not something you can go out and read right now, but you could, you know, probably, you know, get an advanced copy or, or maybe find a, a manuscript somewhere or, or excerpts from it. And it seems like it's kind of onto something in terms of thinking about why you see this behavior that you do among some of these companies. Hmm. Okay, good. Well, there you go. Now, not only do we have tops of stacks that are literally available, but ones that are, you know, going to keep our listeners on the hook for months to come. So that's great. We'll just keep them coming back for more. All right. Um, Billy, this has been fantastic. Thank you again for taking the time out of your um, Glasgow experience to talk with me. And yeah, thanks for helping me wrap up the series in, in fine form. Kristen, it's been totally my pleasure. So much fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. 
The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.